Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member G.R. Barassia shares his unique path that landed him in equity research, M&A, and now a family office running private deals in a global macro fund. Listen to find out why he graduated NYU at 19 years old, only to go directly for an MBA at Cornell. How he ended up eventually breaking into M&A at Lazard in New York, but only after stints in equity research in Tampa. This pod is really fast-paced and really interesting, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Gregory, thank you so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me. So it'd be great if you could just give a summary of your bio. Sure. So uh, my background's a little bit unique. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone likes to think that, but I can kind of dive into it. So I did my undergraduate at New York University. I actually finished undergraduate when I was 19 years old, so I was pretty young. And interestingly enough, I did uh, sports business management as an undergraduate. So the original plan coming into school, I was very young. I wanted to be the general manager of a sports team. And I really didn't know anything about finance, didn't know anything about investment banking, had no experience. I grew up in Georgia, so Mm -hmm. it was pretty far from the industry. My parents weren't in finance or anything like that. Right. Uh, When I got to NYU, I very quickly realized that I did not want to work in sports anymore. And so that was kind of part of the reason I encouraged myself to graduate in three years. But I also uh, started a small online retail business, consumer retail, wholesale retail kind of thing. Mm. It was specifically focused on uh, consumer electronics. And the business did well enough where I was able to make some money, uh, obviously not retire off of it. But it was a robust enough experience whereby I was able to go to Cornell for business school immediately after graduation. So as compared to most people who do the traditional graduate at 22, work for a number of years and then go back to business school because they need that work experience. I had kind of, you know, had a robust enough experience, plus my scores were were okay. So I actually started business school at the age of 20 up in Ithaca and again that's crazy man that's super young that's like first off (laughs) yeah even if you graduated in three years you must have started high school early yeah i was already coming in you're already coming in and then you rushed through it do you like do you feel like when did you kind of make that switch of like okay no i don't want to do the sports management thing i want to do this finance thing i mean it's understandable because you're at nyu you're in the finest capital of the world right um but tell me was it just No, it's actually the exact opposite of that thought process. So what happened was it wasn't like a pull towards finance. Mm -hmm. It was a push away from sports management. So uh, my my father was a general management guy. 
had studied at Cornell, I studied at Harvard, and he had always encouraged me just to go to an Ivy League school. Um, I only applied to NYU. I didn't look at any other schools. I didn't visit any other schools. And it was solely because NYU has the number one sports management program in the nation. And it makes sense because you have every single major sports organization has a, fr- a franchise or at least two here, mm-hmm. right? Um, plus, you have the headquarters of all the leagues. You have agencies, et cetera, here. So that was why I got here. I, my first semester, maybe it was my second semester, mm-hmm. I took an internship at a uh, kind of a sports marketing type company. And that's when I immediately realized it was a huge mistake. And the reason was partially because what you see in sports is the same thing you see in fashion and a few of the other kind of like industries that people work in that they love to work in, which is that you have people who are master's degrees, advanced, incredibly smart people working for incredibly low amounts of money, which was less of a concern to me, Mm -hmm. but it was more just like, if I have a master's degree, I don't want to be the guy who's like responsible for picking up coffee and stuff like that. And so because you had so many people who would love to work for, you know, the New York Yankees or love to work for the NFL, they were kind of lowering themselves to do a task that was, in my opinion, beneath them intellectually. Yep. And so that was when I started looking at other options. And it wasn't even that I wanted to do finance. Actually, it was entrepreneurship was the idea, which was why I started that kind of consumer electronics business. Um, and I still, at that point in time, had no idea about finance and had no idea about banking or, or investments or anything. Like so this that. was freshman year. You started this business, so it makes sense. Like you went there, you uh, say, "Hey, so many people are want to getting into this, you know, sports management thing." Everyone's like, "I get it." So you're like, "This makes no sense." Like everyone's just dying to get in here. It's if you look at it as like a market or a stock, it was way over so uh, way over <laughs> overbought. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For sure. Okay, so and it still is. I mean, look, I mean, people are saying it, it was. Uh, so I think the internship was my freshman year. Yep. And then I, I I did the business over that summer after my first year is when I officially kind of started the whole thing. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's interesting. So you you just started this on a whim, or what gave you you know online uh, business not entrepreneurship? Exactly. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. Again, that's going to be a running theme of mine. So <laughs> I went on to these like business brokerage websites. I yeah. knew I wanted to try to run a business. Okay. I'd always been entrepreneurial. I had a business. My first business was when I was uh, four years old. My mother was a home economics teacher, so she taught me how to uh, knit uh, oven mitts, and I sold them to her friends for a quarter apiece. When I was in high school. I rented out a second locker and would fill it with candy. And actually that business was so successful that I got shut down by the school because enough parents were complaining, you know, that their kids were going to school and they were supposed to be eating healthy meals. And somehow they were managing to get Snickers and Milky Ways and stuff. So <laughs> I, I actually got shut down by the man. So that, that, that might be That's know, a, informed by political views a little bit. It's a good but, lesson. Uh, it's a good lesson. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I always wanted something entrepreneurial. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I found this company called Blue Tech Wireless, which was, at that point in time was nothing more than a website, some inventory, a customer base, uh, and an exclusive relationship with a company called um, EverE Electronics that did, at this point in time, now keep in mind, this was like 2006. So it was a Bluetooth wireless headphone dongle. So back then, right, Bluetooth <laughs> wasn't built into your, that was I big. guess there weren't even iPhones, there were iPods pods mm-hmm. and so you could you could you plug in this adapter put it down work out at the gym etc and so the guy was essentially he was running it as a second business he was selling it uh for effectively less than the amount of inventory he had and then on top of that it came with the website and this and that so i figured all right well this at least gives me a little bit of a fast track to being a business owner so i kind of you know it, it was it was a very very small amount of money 
Uh, and so I was able to just get it from some of my savings and then a couple of bucks from my parents. Would you and was spend able like to purchase it and, and do it. 10 grand, 20 grand, something like that? Oh, uh, it was not, not even that. It was like five grand. Five grand. Five grand and yeah. then some like, yeah, five grand. And then and I think s- there was some legal stuff. I think all in it was like 6,000 bucks. So was that basically, did you, were you able to kind of get rid of the inventory profitably? And, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. It, wound up, it wound up going pretty well. I mean, so one of the things that I realized was we had this product Again, if you think about a wireless headphone, mm-hmm. and now at this point in time, it's very you know easy to think of, but this was almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everyone was, was thinking, all right, well, originally I was thinking, okay, I should go to athletic people, people who like to work out. And yeah, they were a good customer base, but I actually got a lot more sales from nursing homes. And mm-hmm. what you would have is you would have these couples, beautiful couple, been married 45 years. Everything is great. They're in the assisted living community together but they would get into these massive fights. And I saw this everywhere. It wasn't just one or two times. And the fight in, inevitably would always be over how loud the television should be. And then you would have to have these people come in and blah, blah, blah. So I said, look, like, you can have a few of these lying around in your kind of television rooms or whatever and uh, allow your, 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 I guess, residents is what they called them, to, uh, to use them. So I, I, I built the business to a point where, you know, I, I made a few bucks. It was never anything massive. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately, when I got accepted into Cornell, I had a very short turnaround time to decide whether or not I wanted to try to go through a sale process or effectively just liquidate the inventory. Mm-hmm. I chose the latter. Um, but it really was kind of, at that point in time, I, I still was very unsophisticated. I mean, I'm still quite unsophisticated <laughs> in general, but about, about pretty much everything. And, uh, and it was a very unique opportunity to learn about business from like the absolute grassroots. It was really like, thinking about a business on a smaller scale, which I think actually ultimately helped me a lot and it continues to inform some of the decisions I've made to this day. Okay, that's fair. So you're you're basically, but you're going to get your MBA at 19 years old or 20, you know. It's oh, I was 20, yeah. 20, 20 at that point, yeah. So it's super young. Did you ever feel like, hey, maybe I should, did you feel like that was enough experience that running that business was enough? Did you ever feel like, hey, maybe I should go work for a little bit first? How did you? Uh, the well, I, I didn't have time to think that, but I will tell you right now, going to get my MBA was a horrible decision at that point in time. So okay. I'll be the first one to admit it wasn't a great move. Why? I think why do you I think? Tell everyone in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Why? So, so the reason I say it is that business school, in my experience, is essentially a vocational program. It's two years, but if you think about it, from your first class in the fall to your last class in the spring, it's only eighteen months. And on top of that, say you want to get into investment banking, the recruiting window starts like the first December you're there because they have to get the internships and then that pretty much sets you off. So that's really like a two or three month window. Um, and so the way I would describe it to anyone is that, look, if you, if you go to a top business school and you know, say what you want about Cornell, I still think it's a pretty good program, mm-hmm. but, uh, and you know what you want to do going in, I would say 99, maybe not 99, but 90% of the time you'll achieve it to some level of success, right? If you go in and you say, I want to work in investment banking, yeah. You know, maybe you won't come out and wind up at Lazard or Goldman, but you'll get an investment banking job. If you say, I want to start a business or I want to do marketing or this and that. The problem I had was exactly the same issue I had and why I wound up there was I had no idea what I wanted to do because right. I had no idea what any of those things were. Uh, I still remember to this day, like JP Morgan came on campus for an informational, I want to say two or three weeks in, and I had no idea what JP Morgan even did. Yeah. And I mean, that's not me being hyperbolic. Like I just literally, I, I had heard the name obviously, yeah. but I didn't know what investment banking was. I didn't know what consulting was. So I was still under this idea and, and we picked concentrations. Uh, I don't know if all business schools do that, but Cornell at least at the time did. And so my con- concentration was uh, entrepreneurship. 
And that was actually part of the reason why I, I chose Cornell. I, I had a few other schools, uh, both for MBA and then also for kind of like Masters of Finance type programs. Right. But Cornell was a smaller school. It's only 200. It's the smallest Ivy League school, so only 200 students per class. Mm-hmm. And then um, they have like an entrepreneurship concentration, which I was able to be a part of. But up until then, I still had no idea about finance. Got it. So you get it. But then so yeah. you ended up going to Lazard, right? So how did that whole thing happen? Was well, it like- <laughs> okay. So yeah. So, so my summer internship was essentially some guy uh, who had started a, fin- uh, not a, fintech, a uh, biotech company based out of Virginia called Ceres Nanosciences uh, just needed someone to help him. And I wasn't getting paid or anything like that. Yep. And essentially what he was doing was he was, I, I didn't even really realize it or, or you know, wasn't really cognizant of what was going on, but he was trying to raise a second round of funding. He was raising about 5 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, yeah, he had done a kind of a seed round. And so maybe this would now be considered a series A round, whatever. Right. But, um, but I had kind of started taking some of the tools I had done in, in school and put together a financial model and put together investor presentation materials and thought about what's this business worth. And I still didn't truly understand what I was doing, but it kind of clicked. And I was like, wow, that, that's pretty interesting. Like, I kind of am now looking at this business from a perspective. And, and keep in mind, part of the, the other thing was having done that entrepreneurship concentration, I didn't take any finance courses. Oh, wow. uh, I took our, there was an introductory finance course that everyone was required to take. Yeah. But uh, at least at Cornell, the business school was, other than your first semester, it's very open in terms of what classes you can take. Right. And obviously, as an undergraduate, I didn't take any finance courses. So up until this point in time, I'd taken one introductory finance course. And so I really had no idea what anything was. And I just found it pretty interesting. I came back that second year and was like, all right, well, now that I kind of learned a little bit, I understand the opportunities that investment banking could afford someone. Let me try to get into investment banking. And it so was this a is late, disaster. though. But this is, yeah, this is, it doesn't surprise, you said it's a complete disaster. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like because you're coming into second year with like an internship for helping some startup guy trying to raise a yeah. second fund. You have no banking experience. You have no finance. So how did you actually yeah. end up pulling this off? Uh, so, okay. So the story gets even stranger. So I, I still, uh, like at that point in time, I was just focusing on trying to find jobs. Right. So I did a couple of things. My number one priority was educating myself which is something that I try to encourage. So even to this day now, despite even when I was at Lazard, everything, I, I am sure that I read one book every week. Now, obviously at Lazard, that was harder. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that I've learned more and positioned myself better because of just my ability to learn and read on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I've always done is I've always tried to be like as proactive in that process as possible. So, so I'll tell a couple of stories. So the first one was even when I came back to Cornell, I kind of had heard about investment banking, but I'd also heard about this thing called private equity or this thing called venture capital. And I still didn't completely understand what any of that meant. But I, I did know that, you know, I had kind of had the small business experience. I was pretty good with numbers. You know, I was a somewhat smart person. So I, I wanted to learn more about it. So in about February, I emailed, as I still remember the number, 621 of the top VCs in Silicon Valley. So this was Sequoia, <laughs> this was kind of Perkins, and this was completely random, not even any Cornell connections anyway. Yeah. And I literally just said, look, like, I'm going to be in San Francisco, and our spring break was like March, whatever it was, 13th to 17th, whatever, whatever five-day period. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to be in San Francisco, would love 15 minutes to have a coffee uh, and just chat and learn about what you did. That was literally all I said. Yep. Uh, 
Yeah. So of the 600 people, as you would expect, about 10% of them get back to you. Mm -hmm. So you, right then you're getting 60 responses. About half of them are polite, but obviously say no. But I wound up setting up 25 meetings. And right. what was funny about that was, if you remember the timeline, I was, I, was, uh, I was still only 20 years old, so I couldn't rent the car. So my mother actually had to fly out to San Francisco <laughs> and meet me at the airport. And uh, we rented a car. And, and so every morning I put my suit on, I had five meetings a day. We drive to, and they're all on Sand Hill Road, right? So that's what's even funnier about it. So we would drive to one meeting. She would sit in the car for half an hour, read a book. Then I'd get back in. She'd drive down the road to the next meeting. She'd sit in the car for half an hour, and, and, and then I'd go from there. And, and I would say, I was trying to get two things out of it. Most people say, oh, you want to get a job. But I, I didn't even know enough to want to get a job, to right. be honest with you. I was completely naive. I literally just wanted to know what these people were doing and like understand what it was that they did. Did you gain and, that? Like, and that week, that, that, week that, that week you spent there with your mother dry, chauffeuring you around, did you actually gain yeah. that knowledge? Did you feel like those meetings were helpful? Uh, I would say I went from like a zero to a five. Okay. So I didn't really get to the point where I was well-versed, but I think the zero to five is probably the hardest part to get. Yeah. So being able to get that part in, in a week was helpful. And I think just sitting, and, and the thing I admittedly did a poor job of was I didn't do a great job of maintaining those connections. Mm -hmm. I actually, you know, and I think that's something, and I'm happy to talk about once we get to the Lazard part, but, yeah. uh, you know, when you're working 120 hours a week, you fall in touch with people, and then it becomes very transactional, and you just hit people up all the time. So I, I, I admit I did a poor job, but, but I think that I did get a good sense of just, like, this is what these people are doing. But on top of that, other things, like, that they would say then started resonating later on as I had more points of contact. So it's almost like, you know, maybe you learn a, a point and it doesn't completely understand, you don't completely understand it, but then down the road, it clicks. Yeah. after you learn something else, you're like, oh yeah, that's, they, you know, this guy said this, or that guy said that. And actually one of the guys I met with, whose name I continue to say, and this shows you why you should keep it touch with people, was uh, Jeremy Liu. And the only reason I even remember his name is because I was reading an article about the guy who made the first investment in Snapchat. And that was that was Jeremy Liu. So there's a few other guys, you know, at all these big funds, and, and you know, a few of them are quite influential people now. So it was it was a unique experience, and I think that that's one of the things that I've always been comfortable with is just kind of putting myself out there, and you know, being willing to be the dumbest guy has never really concerned me. So you still haven't told me how you actually made it into Lazard, because <laughs> that's oh, not an easy because that's not because that's not an easy jump, right? Like, so you okay? So you go you spend your spring okay. your spring break. This is the second year now yeah that was my that was my last ever spring break and so you have no you have no job you have no job lined up at this point for after no job i have nothing so, so it gets better so i have nothing <laughs> i graduate still no job lined up uh i've got a buddy of mine who lives down in dc i i go to visit him mm -hmm. and uh and i'm kind of in a weird mood so i don't know why i did this i go to a cigar bar mm -hmm. and there's the jr cigar on like i don't know 17th and l or whatever the hell was. yeah I, I don't even really like cigars that much although now i've become more of a fan <laughs> at that point in time, i didn't and okay. uh i'm sitting there and i've got nothing to do all day mm -hmm. uh and i start chatting with this guy and he happens to be the ceo of an investment uh, look i mean I'll, I'll kind of romanticize it a little bit i, I chatted with one guy who then introduced me to this other guy who happens to be the ceo of a project finance based uh investment bank in dc so they were specifically doing like energy finance, um, multinational type, like, uh, you know, coal projects in Nigeria, solar panel plants in Got it. the Dominican, Got it. that kind of thing. Yep. And uh, I explained to him pretty much the exact same story I just told you. And I said, you know, this is where I am. He said, look, like, I can't really hire you, but I like you. I think you're a smart guy. 
if you're interested in, I can pay you a stipend enough to where you can cover your living expenses uh, and you can work here pretty much as long as you want. It'll allow you to have something on your resume. You'll get some experience. Um, and then I'm happy to be referenced, whatever, you know, if it goes well. Yeah. I said, sure, done. Let's do it. So I, so I moved down to D.C. Uh, you know, this is right when you graduate. This is right after you graduate. Right after you graduate. Yeah, yeah, right after graduate. Okay. This is like this is. I think I met with my buddy like the weekend of graduation. Oh my god! And I wound up moving down like two weeks later or something. That's it was all right, right then. And the thing that was weird about it was, and I understand why now. And you know, maybe this is helpful for people, uh, you know, who are, and, and I'm happy to talk about this in depth. But I understand why. I guess I'll take a step back. So for me, I thought it would have been very easy to get a job, right? Because if you think about it, I was. 22 years old, the same age as someone coming out of undergraduate. And I was looking for analyst level roles, right? I wasn't going for MBA level positions. I kind of knew I was a young guy. But the issue was that, as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure, you know, whoever is listening to this may be able to understand, uh, the traditional banking hiring systems are very regimented. Yeah. So like they know who their next analyst class is and they know who the intern class is, which leads to the analyst class. And right. they know who they soft circles from the sophomore year, right? So just breaking in any kind of red flag is a negative. And the one thing I'll say, and, and you know, hopefully this isn't too inflammatory, is in general, like whether you're a hiring person, whether you're an HR person, or whether you're a headhunter, whether you're a recruiter, I've never in my life gotten a job from any of those people mm-hmm. because in my experience, their job is to fill a position as efficiently as possible. Right. And that means as little red flag risk as possible. So they're not actually looking for the best candidate. I can give you a million reasons why I'm a better potential, you know, growth equity investor than someone else, but I would never be put up for that job because my background isn't the traditional, you know, Princeton, two years at, at Goldman, two years at KKR, right. back to Harvard Business School and then back out. So everything I've ever had to do has been some combination of, you know, me figuring my way out and, uh, and just kind of networking. So anyway, so I, I met this guy, wound up down in DC, was there for about six months. My mother was having dinner and she's in Atlanta, Georgia. Yep. And, uh, somehow met some guy at Raymond James. And I don't know. She, she's more of a networker than I am even. And so somehow gets this guy's contact information, encourages me to reach out to him. Uh, next thing you know, I have a round of interviews with Raymond James's equity research group. Now, keep in mind, I have no idea about what equity research is because I can barely understand what an equity is. And, uh, and somehow I managed to get through that. So my first ever quote unquote real job was in November after I had graduated in May. So I was, I was in DC for about six months. And then I went down to Tampa, Florida and took a job in equity research in the real estate group there. Um, and at that point in time, the only reason I picked Tampa's in real estate was because my brother was at the university of Tampa. I had no interest in real estate either way, but I just, uh, <laughs> wanted to be close to my younger brother. Cool. And so, uh, I was there. God, I'm starting to sound like, like the Forrest Gump or something, but I <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> no, this is great. I, uh, this is interesting. So you're, you're down in Tampa. You're having a good time with your brother. Yep, exactly. And, uh, and that was when things started to slowly click. I started realizing that equity research was great. It was great to have kind of like, you know, a, a bank on my resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way I describe it to people like my, I always say like, you know, if I can describe something to my mother, then that means like I can explain it to anyone is that, you know, like if investment bankers are the ones out there making the news, the equity research guys are just the ones reporting the news. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would do all the, the earnings reports and this and the other. I mean, keep in mind in real estate for the public reads, 
those are very slow moving guys, right? They'll buy a yeah. building, they'll issue equity. So it was a very, it was a very boring job in the sense that not a lot was happening and not boring in the sense that I didn't like it, but right. I just thought it was very slow moving. So I immediately started thinking to myself, all right, well, how can I get into, uh, how can I get into uh, faster, banking? Yeah, faster pace. Which I kind of always been percolating since I'd come back from that internship. I guess, and it also, you know, in, in DC, I kind of was technically working in investment banking. I worked on the solar panel deal. I worked on a few other things, which were starting to be more modeling intensive, etc. Right. Uh, and so I, uh, I just reached out. I sent an email to an MD at Lazard and said, "Hey, this is my background. We'd love to learn more." And uh, and he said, okay, and we got on the phone. Just Lazard? Phone I mean, you, ju- you just reached out to Lazard or you reached out to 20 or 30 or how many? Uh, so I reached out to a few. I will mm-hmm. say it was interesting because I reached out to pretty much anyone that would talk to me. Mm-hmm. So I did that through like uh, alumni. I did that through net, you know connections. Some of it was just cold. Um, in terms of people that I actually wound up having kind of phone interviews with, I think it was Mollus. I think it was it was obviously Lazard, and then I think there was a J.P. Morgan in there. And most of them, yep. Yes, okay. I was just going to say, is this mostly from alum from like Cornell from your MBA, or was NYU, or was it a mix? Like the people, uh, it was a complete mix. Yeah, it, it was. It was literally just like I would log on to the alumni directories and just find anyone. Yeah, and then I would like also just search online or LinkedIn, or whatever. Anyone who I had a connection with, I would just put that in the subject line. So like. If it was an NYU graduate, I'd put like NYU alum looking yep. for career advice. If it was, and, and the thing I always have found, which is helpful, is I've never actually asked for anything. I always just say looking for career advice. People generally enjoy talking about themselves, as yeah. I'm sure you, you know, doing this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. And so if you can get someone on the phone with the idea of like, hey, like, I just want to learn more for 15, 20 minutes, they're a lot more receptive to, uh, to that. And then if they understand what you're doing, and then, you know, the other thing I've kind of learned over time is having a tangible ask. So it's not just like, how can you help me? It's like, hey, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. Because I think people generally are good hearted. It's just that they do want to, uh, you know, they, they want to be able to help but in an efficient way. So what, so was, your, what was your tangible them. ask? Just like, is there anyone else you can, that I could speak with? Is that? Yeah, yeah. So this, so this one was, no, this one, no, because I always thought that was kind of a cop out, to be honest with you. Okay. Is, is there anyone else? Yeah. So I, mine was just, mine was very simple. Mine was just, I'd like career advice. I would talk to them about it. I'd say, look, this is what I'm looking to do. And I'd say, I'm looking to be in investment banking. Uh, you know, I have this experience. I've done this, that, the other. Uh, do you ha-? And then I, I would just say, they're going to talk to. It was a similar point. I would be like, are you guys interested in, or like, are you guys looking for people? Uh, if so, who should I speak with? If not, could you just keep me on top of mind? Because again, there's a timing discrepancy, but here's where you can actually use that to your advantage. Like the chances of you getting someone right when they're in the middle of looking for someone are very small. But if you can preempt it, as long as they're, you're in their mind before they get, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be timed perfectly. So that was kind of like, I made it very clear to them that I was looking for a job and that if anything came up to keep me in mind. And that was Great. effectively it. Yeah, I mean, it's smart. And do you feel like it didn't take long after that or did it take a few months or when? No, was... no, it took a year. It took a year. It, it took, took a year. year. And part of okay. that was like, look, I mean, I had an interview with Mollus that went absolutely shit. I had no idea what to expect. What but happened? I'm happy I had got, that one. You got grilled on like, technicals or what? Yeah, it was like it wound up being technical. And like they asked me about, you know, some of the companies I was covering this together. I was just prepared for, you know, your traditional soft interview. So I remember now when I had the hard one and I had just, sorry, go ahead. You weren't ready? Come on, man. Like you hadn't been on Wall Street no, Oasis no. at that point and seeing all the nightmare no, stories. Like, <laughs> you, have, you have to understand where I'm coming from, this whole world from, and I don't know why, I guess it's just a naive thing. Like 
I, I just none of it even now is real to me. It's like all these people who grow up and understand it, and you know they're on Wall Street, and, and I and I've been on it since. And I've seen where people say, oh, "I'm in high school. What is the best college to go to?" Like that's not how I was thinking about it. Like right. I graduated high school at 16. I was just trying to figure out how to meet chicks. Perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Like I take that like you because I like sports. Like yeah. I'm not saying I'm a smarter or a dumber guy. I just I just was never thinking like this. And even to this day. I would make the argument that's probably one of my biggest weak points is that like, and I don't know, maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. You know, I'm not well, you're not planning, you're not planning 10 years ahead of like your path and all that stuff, which is no, I'll plan 10 years ahead, but I'm not one of these guys who's like, look, I have enough confidence in myself mm-hmm. that like, I'm going to, I'm going to, it, it'll be so, look. you always have to be on the path, right? Like there's always a path for everyone, but hopefully what anyone takes from this is that like, you can still go a circuitous route. And I would actually make the argument that everything I've done, so I'm 30 years old now, yep. I would make the argument that compared to every other 30 year old, I'm probably in the top, you know, 2% in terms of like ability to add value in a various certain Now, obviously that's a cocky, egotistical thing to say, mm-hmm. but I think that I actually have a lot more perspective than the traditional kid who went to, you know, some grade school, came out for two years, you know, that same background, because having worked with those kids, there's a couple of things I learned. One is that they're a dime a dozen because everyone is trying to go down the same route. It's very easy to find those people. Yeah. And two, they get very good at playing a game, right? And it's kind of like when you're in school, right? Like you can be very good at school, get straight A's, right. and ultimately not learn much because you're just good at like knowing what to regurgitate, knowing what to write in papers, et cetera. Right. So I, I do think that like when you, and, and some of it's self-selection, right? Like clearly I'm not the kind of person who's ever going to be able to rise through you know, a larger organization, just given this background. But on the other hand, you know, as we can get into it in a family office type thing, you know, where it's a little bit more flexible, I'm a little bit able to kind of be entrepreneurial. I'm, I'm much more suited towards that. So I don't necessarily think it's a good or a bad thing. I just think that my personality allows me to be a little bit more of a chameleon and having those experiences allows me to relate to them. You know, having gone through the Lazard analyst program, but at the same time, having to go this, this way about it, Okay. You know, then informs a lot of things I've done since. So, so yeah, so you, you know, I guess, don't look at. yeah, no, so you, you basically, you managed to get into Lazard. You, you flamed out in a Molus interview prior to that. So you were kind of a little bit more yep. ready, I guess, for the Lazard interview, right? Like you. Oh, for sure. I mean, I actually, I went down the road of like, I printed out all my research reports. I had the interview over lunch. So I went home. I had everything prepared on my, on my little kitchen table. Yeah. I mean, like there is something to be said for the fact that, like I said, look, I, there is a process. There are reasons why these things are in place. Right. I, you know, whether or not I agree with them or not, they're not going to change. <laughs> so so you, I, I knew for, for some of them, you have to play the game. So I tried my best to do so that. So you better. played the game, you got the, got the offer. And at this point, so you were getting what a stipend to survive basically in DC and yep. in Tampa, you were getting probably low, like what a 60,000, $70,000 base. Yeah, exactly. I think it was, I think it was 60,000 at that point in right. time. And then, and you then go I got up, like, yeah, you jump up to Lazard and what is it like 80? or something like that for base uh 70 yeah i was coming as a first year analyst just 10 years ago i think it was 85 it was okay. either 80 or 85 and so then, and then i think my yeah go ahead. what did your bonuses look like and you were there for a couple of years yeah, i was gonna say i think i think my first year bonus was like because i actually think i was middle pack right mm-hmm. we had three tiers we had top tier middle tier low tier yep and i think mine was 60 okay and then it was either 55 or 60 something like that it was it was right in the middle yep and um, then did it kind of ratchet up in the second and third year like significantly more or was it well so it was it was here's again kind of like going back to my point of like having this weird perspective 
So I was actually only an analyst for a year and a half. And oh, okay. then I got promoted to associate. And part of that was, um, was one. So, so, okay. So I, I went into Lazard as the real estate group because I had that real estate background from Raymond James. Yep. Again, if you remember, there was no initial like love of real estate, but that being said, I, I got okay at it and I worked hard. I got better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, around my, and this kind of, I think also is a little bit of a point I'll try to make is, you know, I started making it clear to the guys like, look, I have an MBA. I want to do more consumer retail stuff just because that's naturally my interest. Uh, so I had a few goals in mind. Like I wanted to get to associate level, which I thought was kind of like on par with the, with the business school degree. Right. I wanted to have some consumer retail experience. Uh, I did do some recruiting out to private equity and stuff. But again, as I mentioned, like given my background, no recruiters or headhunters would really touch me. And then on top of that, even when you were at Lazard, like you didn't uh, get any, you didn't get any interviews. Yeah. Well, no, the issue was like, these guys are specifically looking for pre MBA type roles. Right. But even if I would tell someone like, I'm happy to take a pre MBA type role, the woman again, I don't got it. No, no, that's so true. with (laughs) Private equity recruiting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Also, like again, I don't want to say anything inflammatory because I, I'm happy to say this in my name. And I'm not doing this anonymously, but like <laughs> the, the people who are dealing with pre MBA recruiting are generally like younger women who are new to Wall Street, who are very hardworking and diligent, but they are putting square pegs in square holes, round pegs in round holes. Right? So they're they're they're, they're risk averse. They're not role, yeah. They're not yeah. going to take yeah. a risk on you. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. Well, no, not exactly. But if they say pre MBA. And they see an MBA immediately. They just say, "Well, this is not for me." Right. <laughs> and so, so it was it was a frustrating experience because nothing. And, and then on top of that, actually, the real estate recruiting cycle is slightly different than the traditional recruiting cycle. Okay. So it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of that as well. And so, either way, I, I kind of pushed and agitated. And the great thing about Lazard, and, and I, you know, I'm incredibly appreciative for my time there is it is a very lean shop mm-hmm. in terms of both the deals that you work on. So it's very hard, obviously, but the people who make decisions are very visible. You're able to like, so I would go to the head of investment banking and do the exact same thing I did in, in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I would email his secretary and be like, Hey, can I have 30 minutes to chat with him and just get career advice? Just talk to him. And I, I know a lot of people think like, okay, well, this is a way to kiss ass. But, but for me, actually, it was sincere. Like I was still at a point in time where I didn't know that much right. where these conversations were incredibly helpful. And so what was that like talking to the I head started, of investment banking, like getting that time, you weren't nervous. You just, you were confident enough to go in there and be like, Hey, I am an, I'm a second year analyst. Talk to me and give me 30 minutes of your time. And you're busy. You just had that. It, you, yeah. I mean, look, it was, it was actually when I was a first year analyst. It started like pretty wow. soon afterwards. And it wasn't that I was, I was confident. But I was probably just too stupid to even think about it, to be honest <laughs> with you. Like I, my, my thought was, and in all honesty, like, I think realistically people do respond to it. My thought was you're at an organization, you know, you were clearly a successful person and my sense of everyone who I've met who's successful having now spent time with people who are, you know, at a family office worth, you know, close to a billion dollars. Uh, they, part of what you do when you reach a certain level of success is like you do think about how can you impact the next generation? I don't know if it's a legacy thing or whatever it is, but right. I do think it's something that in my experience, people are generally I don't know if it's good hearted, but people do care about, all right, well, if this is someone who works, and, and also look, you have to put in the work, like they're not going to do that. And then if they find out like, okay, well, you're just an asshole, they're not going to do that. But if they're like, look, you're dedicating your time and at Lazard, everyone was working very hard and everyone knew that, you know, you're working overnight, you're doing all this stuff. 
And like 90, 90 plus like, hour weeks or something and 90, 100 hour weeks? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, look, I, as an analyst, at least, yeah. I mean, there were, there were weeks, I would say on average, I've tried to do this before. Yeah. It, it was something where it was like every week, or every year for a certain number of years, I was in on Thanksgiving, Christmas, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. It was like on average, I think it was like 75, 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. But then like it would ratchet obviously between, I think a light week would be 60 and then a busy week would be somewhere over 100. Yeah. Um, just because again, you're looking at deal teams where like, so, so ultimately, I'll kind of skip ahead a little bit. When I was on the Burger King Tim Hortons deal, mm-hmm. uh, where we were the sole buy side advisor to Burger King when they were acquiring Tim Hortons, and that was with 3G, our deal team on kind of the more junior side was me as the associate. I had one analyst below me, and I had one VP above me, and that was essentially the deal team. Yeah. Now, we had a, an MD who kind of would like interface with the client, but in terms of like doing the work and everything, it was just the three of us. So, you know, it's the good and the bad, right? You work very hard. And I think that's part of the reason why over that two and a half year time period, I was able to learn so much because, you know, it's like to the gym, right? If you go into the gym and you sit on the treadmill for two minutes, you're not going to get in shape. Mm -hmm. But if you really work hard, it's probably a little bit more unpleasant. But at the same time, you're able to get much more progress and and get much better at things quicker. Sure. So so you're there there for a couple of years. You feel like, you know, once you got the promote to associate, I know you said you'd kind of dabbled and thought of and potentially tried to do a little bit of private equity recruiting. Was this something where you were like, hey, I just need to change a pace? Is it too much where you, if you're getting burnt out after two two plus years? Or uh, was it something where no, you're so like... it was a little bit different. Yeah, so I would me. say, and part of the reason I brought up the business was I started kind of, look, I think for a long time, I've always had this like thesis in my mind. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't necessarily know if I was smart enough to articulate it properly but this is how it manifested itself, mm-hmm. which was that there's this massive inefficiency in the lower market. And I'm still convinced it exists and I can explain to you why it exists or not, but there's a number of reasons why. And essentially what I realized was, and this again, probably some stupidity was I was like, like, okay, well I should just try to figure out a way to do it myself. So I actually left Lazard. I met this guy on a train from, from New York to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And we wound up essentially starting a private equity shop, a growth equity shop. Okay. Uh, and it was a search fund, non-committed capital sponsor. So we would go out, we would try to find transactions, at the same time try to find financing, and then go from there. Uh, we raised $350,000 into the business as operating capital. Uh, and then that was that. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like, I never got the burnout. I never got the sick of it. Like, I don't know. It was, I think that was people do get that, but my sense is having been there, a lot of people stay there a long time. And I think part of it is actually in a weird way because the deal teams are smaller mm-hmm. and because you're working on so many unique projects so much, like I can understand burnout if you're doing the same thing over and over again, if you're putting together pitch decks that never go anywhere and you're doing that for a right. year and a half and you're like, this is crazy. But I think at Lazard, they did, at least when I was there, they did a great job of like, if you wanted to work and you want to work on interesting projects, they would always provide you with that opportunity. So why leave? So, you felt like this, this lower middle, this, this opportunity in the middle market or doing a search fund was a better opportunity or more interesting? You, kind of your entrepreneurial itch couldn't, couldn't It was scratch. an entrepreneurial thing. And also yeah. I've always been someone who would rather, look, like it's just a personality thing, right? You have people who would love to be like 
you know, X title and X firm, mm-hmm. and they get a lot of value and kind of utility out of that. Yep. I've always been the kind of person who would rather own, you know, 50% of a $10 million business than, you know, be the head of, you know, investment banking at Goldman or something like that. It's just right. a personal preference. Yep. I mean, I can see the value in both. And obviously the long-term financial rewards differ depending on how successful you are, right? Like obviously yeah. if I had built that firm into, into Blackstone, then it's a different situation than if you wind up on the street doing nothing. But, uh, but I've always just been more willing to take that risk. So what happened with this uh, search fund? So you raised 350, did you guys end up finding a company? Yeah, so, so it, was, it was very interesting actually. So, so we worked on a number of deals. We essentially operated as a merchant bank. So we did everything from advisory, capital raise advisory, business consulting stuff. We were affiliated with a broker dealer so we could do you know, all the traditional stuff, the series seven, I had to do all that, you know, seven, 63, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were able to get some good fee revenue from working with clients on a couple of different deals, some startups that needed funding that we weren't able to invest in, some larger buyouts. Keep in mind, it's a startup, so you're pretty much doing anything you can to make money. Right. And then we were also able to get a couple of transactions that ultimately closed. Uh, one was a $5 million publishing deal, uh, which took a little while, but, but got there. Uh, and then what was else? We worked on a large oil and gas transaction, which we were able to get a significant portion of the capital, couldn't close that one. Uh, and then we got a we got a food and beverage deal done. But then so, where, where so are you even sourcing? At, where are you sourcing these? Like, how are you? What was the? Oh, I mean, I would anywhere. like uh, I would do a couple of things. So there would be like all these business brokers and all these people out there that I would just send random, you know, cold email those people. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, you know, there's one. This one I don't want to name, but but there was one where and it, they, she's wound up becoming incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. There's a food and beverage concept. I just walked in the restaurant and I, or the store, I guess is how you would call it. And I just started talking to her and I said, Hey, I think that this can grow and become a multi, you know, million dollar type business. And we spent a lot of time working with her, giving some consulting advice. We wound up not being able to consummate a transaction more on the capital side than on the business side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, to her credit, she's gone on and, and become very successful with it. Interesting. So yeah. it was everything. I mean, it was literally just networking. Uh, there was a similar one that was a, um, that was like a, uh, a, a fashion company that had a similar outcome yep. where I met the guy was, you know, in, I think last year he did $16 million in revenue. And mm-hmm. when I first met him, he had done like 250,000 or something like that. So not bad. it was, it was, <laughs> it was literally just this kind of like, uh, it, it goes back to what I'm saying. Like there's a huge inefficiency in this market, partially because people don't realize what they have. Mm-hmm. And they're unsophisticated, not because they're unintelligent, but just because, like, if you're a really good fashion designer, you've never really studied finance before. Right. So there's a natural synergy between someone who understands that and someone who can help think through growing a business and people who have, and obviously fashion is just one example, but I was specifically focusing on operating businesses with sub, I want to say sub $10 million in revenue at the time that I would start working with them. Right. Interesting. And so... You did that for a few years. Why change? It sounded like you were getting a lot of different interesting kind of mandates yeah, so, and stuff like that. And so. Yeah, so what happened was as a part of that, I, I met this family office. It's two, uh, two families mm-hmm. or two high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. Both who came from the public equity, uh, public space, one public equities, one public, more public debt, global macro type stuff. And uh, I met them actually a year before I officially joined them. And it was part of that capital raise thing. And they said, look, what you're doing is interesting. Uh, you're running around chasing your tail looking for capital. You know, we're sitting on, you know, a significant amount of capital. <laughs> and 
at the same time, we would be interested in maybe doing more private stuff. And then also we have this kind of like global macro fund that we're looking at building out a little bit more. You know, you can kind of wear a few different hats that seems to suit you. And I said, yeah, I think, look, let me see how it goes. Over the next year, we got to a point where investors were able to get made whole with a small return, able to kind of like finish up the, you know, that publishing deal with round of closing. Mm-hmm. We were able to kind of like structure it in such a way that everyone was, was happy. Um, and then I joined them full time about two and a half years ago, two years ago. And uh, has it been enough variety for you now that you've been there for a couple of years? Do you feel like you're still interested? Because I feel like for you, just talking to you in this short time we've been talking, it seems like your your brain moves fast, your words move fast. So the question is, <laughs> the question is, can you stay in the seat for too long before you get bored? Because your brain, you know, yeah, when you when you have when you're bright and when you're sharp and you're you're like always looking at the next opportunity and always, I get it. I've you know. It's not my personality, but I, I, I've met people like that. So the question is, do you feel like you're fully utilizing like your, your full mental capacity in this role? Or do you, yeah, do you, you know so what I mean? Funny, okay, yeah. So, so look, I, 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 I completely agree with you, and I need to work on speaking more slowly. No, I like this it. We're getting a lot of information in a short amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is I good. Just, like I always tell people, it's not that I'm speaking fast, it's that they're listening slow. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but... No, so, so I would answer your question in a couple of different ways. So it's very unique in the family office world. It's incredibly unique. And mm-hmm. that's probably a whole other podcast in and of itself. Uh, the saying is that when you've met one family office, you've met one family office, right? That's right. kind of like the, the joke that goes on in the industry because it's so unique. And I actually wrote an article about it. I'm happy to share it with anyone who wants to sure. read about it. Yeah. About kind of like the diversity amongst the family offices, everything from people who have made their own money to people who have inherited it in different fields, et cetera. I'm very fortunate to be in a situation where it's two men, or not, has nothing to do with them being men, I have to be careful with that, but two people yeah. who have made their own money in finance. So if you look at the spectrum of people who are the most sophisticated to the least sophisticated, generally, as it relates to finance, people who have made their own money are more sophisticated than you know the fifth generation. And in terms of financial products, someone who's made their money in the hedge fund world probably knows more about finance than some guy who sold his you know, trucking company. So from that perspective, these are the kind of like the upper right quadrant in terms of sophistication. Yeah. And on top of that, it's two guys. There's one guy who runs their like more public hedge fund type stuff. And then there's me. So there's literally just like the four of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have a chief operating officer. We have a, a, you know, kind of administrative guy and we have a pretty robust back office group. But on the investment side, it's, you know, it's four people. It's basically one. So, it's basically the two the two people who have the money, <laughs> right? Yeah, who have the capital, exactly. and then you're running the private side where you're doing more like the private deals. How how are you putting? How much how much money do you have actually put to work if you wanted to? If you found yeah, the right deal, it so doesn't matter. So that's a good question. So yeah. I, I started off being the guy who was doing the private side, and now I'm more the guy who does the global macro stuff. Partially because what I was going to say after saying all the good things about them is that. The one thing about people that I've realized is generally if you've made a lot of money doing something in your career, and this makes perfect sense, you're very hesitant to change doing that, regardless mm-hmm. of how much money you have. So we were working on one deal, and as is the nature of private transactions, it was taking, you know, I think it was taking 13, 14 months, there's renegotiations, there's retrades, there's operate, blah, blah, blah. And they're sitting there thinking, like, we're used to the world where you can be in and out of a position of multi-hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, a day. Why am I spending all this brain power and time worrying about a $10 million investment? So what has wound up happening is 
there has been some kind of like constant calibration with originally the idea was, all right, maybe we'll put together a $35 million fund and it's kind of evolved now to a more of an ad hoc basis. So getting back to your original question about, you know, is this enough? The advantage that I have as compared to someone who's just sitting in a global macro seat is because it's just such a small group, because getting back to that point, like I do believe people are generally good hearted and to be, you know, I'm not just saying this because they're my bosses. Like these are two of the nicest people I've ever met and worked for in my life. Mm-hmm. Like you would never know that they've achieved significant success. They're just very down to earth, nice yep. people. Yep. Um, they're very open and willing to support and be sounding boards for a lot of different things. So I do spend most of my time now or more of my time now on the global macro fund, but I've, you know, they put a seed investment into a consumer goods company because they know I'm interested in that space that I'm starting to build out. Uh, we've had some discussions about a fintech startup that a old colleague of mine from Lazard is starting that he and I have been kicking around the idea for a while. And obviously, given their expertise, they'd be very valuable just as as uh, advisors, let alone as capital providers. Yep. And then a couple of other things that we've talked about. And so I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I kind of get a little bit of the best of both worlds. Talk to me about talk to me about the global macro fund. So you're spending more of your time doing sure. that. How do you how did you even pick up enough knowledge to feel confident enough to run that much money? Oh, I, uh, I <laughs> just on the fly, <laughs> on the fly. You're like, I can't believe I'm trading this much. But like, what type of what no, types you know what's of so funny about that is, yeah. is, is actually and, and these guys kind of joke about it. Like, and I still tell them, like, you know, we'll be talking about convexity. And, and one of these guys was like, you know, one of the top fixed income traders on Wall Street for 20 years, like very well known guy. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll be talking about convexity and duration. And I'll say something that, you know, he probably learned as a second grader. And I'll just be like, all right, guys, I want everyone to realize I understand that concept now. You know, I kind of like bust my own ass a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, like I, I did spend a lot of time when I first got there. I said, you know, do you have any books you can recommend? And I read the 15 books he gave me. Right. Everything from like how to trade municipal securities. I mean, we've done everything from municipal securities to uh, corporates, governments, um, you know, different derivatives, futures, stuff that I had. It's just really cool because you've done everything from like the advisory side to the, the private smaller deal side, the lower middle market to now doing a little bit of that, but also now all of a sudden global macro, like your global macro PM basically. (laughs) Exactly. And that, and that kind of gets back to what I was saying. I I mean, I kind of realized now when I said that, you know, if you took any third year old that I'd be in the top 2% of them, I realize now that sounds like kind of an asshole thing to say. No, but I mean, what I kind of meant by that was, was that exactly that point. I've looked at a lot of different things yeah. and maybe I'm not an expert in any of them, but I at least feel facile enough in almost all of them that I could have a role and add some value. Why, there, why did right? they hire I mean, Why did they hire you? Was it because they liked how you were sourcing the private deals and then they thought, Hey, this kid's sharp, but then why would they even give you like the keys to the global macro thing? Was it because you're coming up with good ideas? Was it because after reading that book, you impressed them? Tell me how you got that trust. Uh, I think it was a transition thing. Yeah. And I mean, look, like it, it's still not like I'm the, at the right. end of the day, I'm definitely not like a portfolio manager. Like, Anything that I come up with still goes through these right. guys. Got and it. that's just how it was for everything. And even on, on the on the uh, equity side, uh, I'm obviously not involved there, but my sense is it's a very collaborative environment. So it's not like I can just go rogue one day. Right. But I will say that, you know, um, the gentleman for whom I work, uh, he either truly believes in me or at least does a good enough job pretending that when I do come up with ideas or I do do analysis that, you know, we actually sit and discuss it. And I think that, that was just over time. I think that your point was correct. I think they initially brought me on 
because of the private stuff, because they thought I was a relatively sharp guy. Mm -hmm. And also, you have to understand the thing about the family office world is the incentives are a little bit different, right? So if you're running a hedge fund, you have to outperform every quarter because your investors are constantly looking at it. They're constantly at risk of drawing out their capital and you have to be super on top of it, et cetera. Here, the number one name of the game is don't lose money because this is mostly their personal capital and what's not their personal capital is friends and family. So it's a a lot different type of environment and that is lower stress, lower pressure. Um, And the way we just think about it is much different. So I think Mm. that's also been a benefit for me. I think, you know, there's no way I'd be able to go to a traditional global macro hedge fund with my background and have been able to do that. I think now maybe I could just because I've had this learning experience and I've and I've learned from someone who's so accomplished. And since I it's so, be someone who could, yeah. Go sorry, I was just going to say, and so it's it's a little bit more conservative since, it, like you said, it, you're not you're not having to hit some sort of like arbitrary ten to fifteen percent return a year. You're doing more fixed income, kind of lower risk, mostly deals. Right. Or is that is that how I should think about it? Uh, no, I, I, so we're, we're like, we're effectively have, we have like this internal benchmark that we hold ourselves to and we think about, and even that was an analysis that we did. Like a lot of it's in a weird way. Like, I don't want to sound like someone who's like plugging the CFA Institute, but if you go through that whole curriculum, yep. a lot of it is very much focused on more like wealth management, but yep. that's kind of how we went through looking at their portfolio. So it's like, if you have X hundred millions of dollars and you want to allocate, you know, a hundred million dollars of your personal money into this type of fund. What should the internal benchmark be? How should we think about it? So we ran all these analyses of like over 10-year periods, over 15-year periods. What has the highest sharp ratio? Is it a 60-40 portfolio? Is it a 50-30? A 50-50? Is it 70-30, et cetera? Right. So what we came up with was we came up with this internal benchmark of 70-30 equity debt. And then other than that, we pretty much can do anything on top of it, right? And we mm-hmm. have set internal bounds where we're happy being up to 100% equity or down to 40% equity. So we'll give ourselves 70, 30 plus or minus 30% on the equity side. So you have some flexibility depending on, yeah, got it. Yep, exactly. And then uh, effectively on top of that, we can layer in futures positions, derivatives positions, et cetera. But again, the thing that you have to think about is like, look, if the equity market is up, whatever it is now, 24% bonds (laughs) or whatever. So like, let's just say like, for example, we end the year up 15%. Uh, mm-hmm. just for round numbers. Yep. And let's just say that you have $100 million of your personal money in, right? You just made $15 million. In order to make $15 million of carry off of a $100 million fund, right, you would have to outperform by whatever ridiculous number it is. So that kind of gets back to what I'm saying about, like the math is just a little bit different yep. because one, it's their own money to so the ultimate investors. And then two, there's not that secondary layer of like, you're not paying a third party advisor. Yeah. And these guys also enjoy it, right? Like this is an intellect, like at a certain point in time, I think when you have enough money, you just want to do things that are intellectually stimulating. So for all of us, and we actually, you know, every day go out for lunch as a group and we just sit and we talk about the markets, we talk about politics, we talk about everything. And I think that's something that's just enjoyable to continue to keep things sharp. And then we make our positions literally kind of like three to five year thematic type bets on Got countries, on, on that type of thing. And that's the way we think about it. It's really interesting, man. It sounds like an awesome job. <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's, I mean, look, I'm very fortunate. It, it is, it's, it's a unique situation. Yeah, I will say that. And I'm very fortunate. And the people who I work for are incredibly nice people. So what's the, what does the future hold for you? You feel like you're just going to be riding off into the sunset in this, <laughs> in this no, role? No, no, and no, what, what, what's your thoughts? Because, uh, because you did key in on it. Like I get very restless. Mm-hmm. So I've, and I've had this conversation with them. Mm-hmm. which is that the downside of a family office 
is that there is no real upward mobility, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a hedge fund, it grows and people take over and people run and blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, here, if these guys decide tomorrow to close up shop, that's, that's kind of the end of it. Yep. And so uh, it's not that they wouldn't necessarily be open towards, you know, different ideas or, you know, potentially putting together a portfolio that I can more independently run. Yeah. But I do think more of my background is on the private side and it's just something that they're not as interested in doing. That being said, they have shown a willingness, like I said, to seed some of these little things, put money here, put money there. So yeah. I think for me, it's finding a way to use the infrastructure that I have, the relationships that I've developed, and then create something whereby I have a little bit more control and ownership over yeah. how that manifests itself. I don't know. And honestly, it's something I struggle with all the time because you know, if I was someone who was a little bit more content and, you know, this is kind of a personal growth thing I might have to work on. You're right. I could be in a very good position where for the next number of years, you know, continuing to build out this book, taking on more responsibility, maybe mm-hmm. getting to a point where some of it is completely autonomous under me, you know, showing off if I can get returns there. And it's a really attractive opportunity. Yeah. I do think the entrepreneurial itch is something that I, I'm constantly thinking about and, you know, it's still something that is in the back of my mind. How can I build a business? How can I build multiple businesses? Because even I tell these guys, like, look, they've made a lot of money. And yeah, they did it in hedge funds. They did it in finance. But at the end of the day, the reason they made a lot of money was because they were entrepreneurs, right? right. They started hedge funds. They started businesses where they went out and they raised capital. They had equity ownership of the fund itself. And then that's what made them, you know, high net worth individuals. Right. And so I still do believe that, you know, the tools you learn from banking, from all these different things are incredibly valuable. But if you want to get to a point where you have autonomy, have at least in my opinion, again, you know, I would rather be that person who owns hundred percent of a $10 million business than that person who's, you know, a bigger thing, just because I think that provides more flexibility. So it's a long way of saying, I have no idea what the future holds. Uh, you know, it could be, it could be still here five years from now, or it could be somewhere completely different. Who knows? Interesting, man. Well, it sounds like whatever you choose, your your future is very bright. So congratulations on all the crazy and interesting steps you've taken to get to where you are. <laughs> no, it's, it's been a lot. But, it's it's you know, uh, it's an awesome it's an awesome story. It's an awesome winding road and not very non traditional. Um, when I heard you say it's non traditional, I kind of laughed because I'm like, I've heard almost everything. <laughs> yeah. I know. No, no, I told you. I mean, as soon as yeah. I said that, I was like, oh, I'm sure everyone who talks, anyone who's willing to go on a podcast and talk about themselves thinks of themselves as somewhat special. So I, I figured I had to up the bar a little bit to, uh, to process that. Well, I, pre- I appreciate that. I appreciate you upping the bar. No, no, a, new, sure. a new bar has been set, but. Um, yeah. Thank you. No, thank you so much for real, for real, for taking the time. It's been, it's been really fun, Greg. Perfect. No, thank you very much. I enjoyed it and uh, happy to continue or speak to whomever. Cool, man. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.